Um, This morning, we're going to start a new sermon series in the parables, and it's intentionally not the parables of Jesus, and you'll see why in a moment, though from this week on, they will be the parables of Jesus, but you'll see in a moment why. Today, we're going to start in maybe through a little bit of a different doorway in a parable from the Old Testament, and this is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, and so if you have a Bible, you can open that up, Um, and it's the first seven verses, and this should be a pretty familiar story to you if you've been around the Bible uh, a little bit, but maybe not. Uh, this, uh, the background of this, I'll tell you in a moment, but this is a, a parable that is spoken by the prophet Nathan to King David at this sort of pinnacle moment, or you might say low moment of his life, however you see that. Um, this is God's word to us. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When Nathan arrived, he said, there were two men in the same city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing, just one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised that lamb, and it grew up with him and his children. It would eat from his food and drink from his cup, even sleep in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to visit the rich man, but he wasn't willing to take anything from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had arrived. Instead, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the visitor. David, hearing this story, got very angry at the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this is is demonic. He must restore the ewe lamb seven times over because he did this and because he had no compassion. And then verse 7, You are that man, Nathan told David. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for this word. This is a powerful word. Um... Might we hear your word to us, spoken even by Nathan to David. Might it be spoken to us, our hearts, our lives, this very morning. And would your word, alive and active, do the work that it needs to do in our our lives. And even in our community, God, would you shape us? Would you challenge us? Would you invite us into new ways of living and being, both individually as families and as a community? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, legend has it that um, Ernst Hemingway, the, the American author, once bet a bunch of guys at a bar, it's going to sound like a guys at a bar joke, but it's not, that he could make them cry with just a short story of six words. And if he won the bet, every one of those guys would have to pay him $10. If he lost the bet, he'd pay each of them $10. And Hemingway's six-word short story was simply this, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Now, it's debatable whether that story is actually, we'll never know if the anecdote is fictional or factual, if if it was actually Hemingway's or not. This has become a whole kind of genre of short stories now, six-word short stories. But we do know this, that the challenge works. If you hear that story, depending on how you hear it, where you hear it from in your own life, it brings things up, right? Am I right? There's this growing body of uh, brain science that has begun to offer this insight into what happens to us as we listen to and engage with stories, both short-form, six-word stories, and then long-form novel length. I know summers are a time of just reading books. You know, how many of you have like a summer reading list right now? You're a couple of you. Okay, maybe nobody else. But uh, now you're not alone because I don't read a lot either. My wife is the reader in our family. But um, not only do we engage or have to, often a physiological response to stories, so your, your palms might sway, your heart might flutter a little bit, your facial 
uh, expressions might change and shift. You might even cry. But we're also, whether we know it or not, having neurological responses. So uh, one study, for example, found that the brain networks that process emotions arising from sounds, along with areas involved in movement, are activated in listeners, especially during the emotional parts of stories. Another study found that uh, research subjects, as they heard a story unfold, their brainwaves actually start to synchronize with the storyteller, which is fascinating to think about. Melanie Green, who's a communication professor at the University of Buffalo and studies the power of narrative there, um, she, she says that stories can alter broader attitudes, like our views on relationships, politics, the environment, messages that we feel like, that may feel like commands, even good advice coming from good people, perhaps even a sermon you might hear some Sunday in June. Uh, if someone tells you a story, you know, those aren't always received well. If someone tells you a story about a time they too had to end, maybe, for example, a painful relationship or endure a difficult season of life or overcome some overwhelming odd. If they tell you a story of a time that happened to them, the information will likely come across less like a lecture and more like a personal truth. See, the reason for, sh- and the reason for sharing this little tidbit of science with you is, like I said, we're going to this parable series, and um, parables, as many of us know, are sort of the, some are only one or two sentences long, are kind of the biblical version of the short story. You know, you think of Hemingway's six-word story. These are the biblical version of that. And they're, they're often seen as the, the hallmark of Jesus' teaching. Mark 4 says this, that with many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. I think we often think of Jesus as this kind of quintessential teacher, right? When in fact, he was the quintessential storyteller. And in that way, the genre of storytelling, this genre of storytelling, it, it really refers to a simple device that Jesus often transformed into something that mystified more than it informed. Um, it set forth these comparisons that tended to, as the, the New Testament scholar Robert Capon once said, make mincemeat of people's religious expectations. He's trying to m- kind of mix things up a little bit and, and cause us to think differently about how we may have thought about God and ourselves and those relationships that we do have. Um, that said, the parables, uh, as I mentioned, are not restricted to the life and teaching of Jesus. Um, many of us have probably thought of it that way. You think parable, you think Jesus. These stories go back for millennia. They're found in the Old Testament, like this one we just read. Um, they're stories that would have been told in the home, the Jewish home of the ancient Near East, often around the dinner table or in the workshop or in the field or the synagogue. These are very common ways for people in the Jewish and ancient Near Eastern world to engage in life together and to imagine what that life might look like. And so that said, as we begin the parable series this morning, I just want to invite us to consider this short parable from the Old Testament, Nathan speaking to David, 2 Samuel 12. And it's interesting, not only because it comes from the Old Testament, and so it can offer a little bit of a different lens through which to look at parables, but also I think it offers some, some key insights around the whole genre of parables that I think will guide us in these next weeks. And so let's look at a few of the aspects of this parable and then hopefully you can tuck these away. And if you're here every Sunday or not, you know, you can hopefully, this, as you read parables, maybe these can help you a little bit. So we're going to look at why Nathan tells this story. We're going to look at where the source of David's anger comes from. Um, he gets really angry. Did you see that shift? <laughs> it's unsolicited anger. It's crazy. So what's the source of that? And then what's this story intended to do? So why, where, what? Why Nathan's story? Where's David's anger from? And then what's this story intended to do, okay? 
So first, why does Nathan tell this story? Here's the back, the context for those that may wonder. Um, 2 Samuel 12 tells in 11 before, it tells the story about David, who's the king of Israel at that time, has basically blown his life up and the lives of all those people around him. If you know the story, it's spring and David's mighty men. These are this group of 80 elite soldiers that are his really closest friends have gone out as, as according to the custom of the time to pillage all the neighboring communities and to plunder their towns. And so, but David stays behind on this particular outing. And I think that's symbolic of a little bit of his own spiritual life. But also I think he's in this place where is, in his life he doesn't seem to need to prove himself anymore. Why go fight? I'm King David. And so it's this one afternoon in that time while he's walking the palace roof, he's positioned, it seems, so he can kind of see into the neighboring homes. You can think the palace is up a little bit higher. He can see into these neighboring courtyards and homes, and the homes in the ancient Near East are built around courtyards. So there's, you know, a wall around, just like when Ken, you remember in Lamu when we were there, Val? Like there's a courtyard in the middle, and there's these terraces, and he can see into these. And it so happens that he sees in this one courtyard a woman bathing in the privacy of her own home, and her name's Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba's husband happens to be one of David's mighty men. His name is Uriah. And one of, in that respect, one of David's closest friends and allies. And David, though, is, even though he might know this and seeing this woman, he's moved by lust, so much so that he summons her and he sexually assaults her and he gets her pregnant. I mean, it's a really challenging text to read. I think we think of them as having as a consensual relationship. Perhaps that comes later. But if you read ancient Near Eastern texts, it's, it's really not that easy, not that simple. And so this is a very complicated story. Um, and then it gets more complicated because then when David discovers this truth, that she becomes to him and tells him, I'm pregnant, 2 Samuel 11, he summons Uriah home from war, hoping maybe that he and Bathsheba will sleep together and that he'll be able to pass the child off as belonging to Uriah, not to himself. But Uriah is this disciplined soldier. And so when he comes home, he doesn't sleep in his home. He sleeps on the palace steps, David's home. And so David has no idea what to do, and he does this. He has Uriah assassinated. He orders Uriah's comrades. Again, these are David's closest friends and Uriah's closest friends in the midst of battle, to pull back so that Uriah is left alone and he's killed. And then following Uriah's death, David takes Bathsheba as his eighth wife. And the rest is history, as they say. Such is the story of David, writes Eugene Peterson. It's a tough story. And yet, it's a story, though graphic in detail, that's been repeated in variations over and over and over and over again throughout history. Peterson says this, that sin stories after a while tend to sound pretty much the same. All ringing of the same thing of wanting to be gods, ourselves taking charge of our own lives, asserting control over the lives of others. And since there's only a finite number of ways to do this, no one of us reading the story should have any difficulty finding himself or herself in it, at least to a degree. The precise details of our sin might not correspond to David's, but the presence and recurrence of sin is nonetheless the same. Here's Peterson again. The moment we recognize our common sin bond with David, that's the moment we're ready for the real surprise of this story, that the gospel story is developing out of the sin story. 
The gospel story is developing out of the sin story, not in spite of it. So why does Nathan tell David this story? That's the question I want to ponder here in the first moment. It's the gospel story developing out of the sin story. Nathan's a prophet. He's sort of like uh, David's pastor, like I'm many of your pastors. Think of Phineas Gurley to Abraham Lincoln. He was Abraham Lincoln's pastor, and that's a little... Now you can use for trivial pursuit next time you play because nobody else would know that. But Joel Hunter to Barack Obama, he's, his job is to advise and to speak into David's life, speak truth to power, but also offer comfort. As you know, leadership is a very uncomfortable position to be in and to console in times of loss. It's not easy to lead. And in times of darkness and despair, I mean, David and Nathan have a big job to do. And so, in many ways, the gospel, as we think of it this way, is not just a set of precepts and truths that we read about and memorize and, you know, rehearse. It's not a book. The gospel is the embodied presence of God in people like Nathan. It is, as John tells us, the word made flesh. And Nathan, as the messenger of the gospel of David, is this very thing. He is a brave storyteller. It's not clear that God says, hey, Nathan, here's the story I need you to go tell David. Nathan is just sent by God to David. He's a brave storyteller. I don't know whose story this is. It could have been a common story in the ancient Near East. It could have been Nathan's very own story that he discerned with the Spirit. We don't know. But he's a brave storyteller, one who embodies prophetic friendship and radical community. I mean, that's what friendship is really, prophetic friendship, radical community. He knows what's going on. He's that close. He's not just his pastor. He's his friend. If you, he's not just a cleric. If you read the whole narrative, Nathan and David are as close as they get. And why that's important is that David would never, ever, 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 ever in a million years have seen what he saw without Nathan. He was so kind of anesthetized. That's a, that's a hard word to say, but you know, he's so... Dead in his sin. It, and, and so he needs, that's the first kind of invitation of these parables. They're really, the power of parables in our lives is to wake us up. Without stories told from the heart of our close friends, we will not change. Without stories told to us from the hearts of our friends, we will not change. You know, back in um, 1998, a few of you probably weren't born yet. I don't know, most of you probably were. Um, I was living in a community here in Seattle that was part of University Presbyterian Church. So that's kind of where I was formed in the Presbyterian Church and UPC specifically. And it's called, it was called Seattle's Intentional Community. Actually, long story short, this is how I met Elizabeth. So there you have it, you know. It's this uh, community that's been formed to live with one another in the city, to do life in Christ, to serve our neighbors on the margins. It was kind of the Christian version of the real world from MTV. If you remember that show, some of you know that show. The Gen Xers in the room know that show. The rest of us don't have TVs. We have YouTube TV, so we have no idea. But check like it out. And so it happens that at that time, I was also, I happened to be in some pretty significant student loan debt. Went to private school, took out a couple loans, and... Uh, in making as little as I was making in that season, I was working at Barnes & Noble in the New Village, and I was a bookseller, you know, killing it. $8 an hour. I had a car payment. I had rent. I made a calculated risk. Guess what that risk was? 
not going to pay my loan, my student loan. I did this for an entire year. I didn't pay. I just ignored the notices in the mail. I ignored the phone calls I'd receive until they became threats. Like literal, and some of you are grimacing because you've had this happen or you know about it. Threats of defaulting on my loans, threats of garnishing my meager wages. <laughs> uh, and so Sally May, our dear friend, our dear loan company friend, was making these phone calls one day to my, one of my housemates, happened to be home, and she picked up the phone. This is back in the day of landlines for all you young people here. Phones used to plug into the wall, kind of like this. It's not for charging either, and you'd pick the phone up like that, and that was the way you did it. Some of you understand. So this housemate of mine, um, I know she picked the phone up because I got home that day, and she was sitting on this couch, big blue couch that you know we'd probably gotten donated, and she had this look of anger and disappointment in her face. So much so... I knew the moment I walked in that door, I was in hot water. It was anger and disappointment with me. I knew I'd stepped into something. What was so amazing about this encounter, she, you know, she had talked to the Sally Mae person and learned the story. And by the way, I don't know how, because that's usually very private, but <laughs> apparently not. Uh, they just wanted my money. So she approached me in that moment. And she, she told me a story about how her family, when she was younger, had gone bankrupt. And uh, as a child, how she'd grown up living in this, with this deep shame and fear of really not ever having enough. They couldn't go on vacations. Um, they were always just kind of going from paycheck to paycheck. And how that had crippled her with this overwhelming fear of, of, of scarcity. She had so much anxiety when I knew her. Um, and she just expressed this desire to me. Remember, stories told from the heart. Friend to friend. Prophetic friendship. This is well before I met Elizabeth, well before our children were born. She said, you know, I just have this deep desire for your story to not be the same as my story. Will you get some help? Nathan was like my friend, just this prophetic friend to David. And as prophets to one another, now kind of go back into our lives, uh, I think we can think of prophets as these biblical figures that big beards in robes and things like that, as prophets to one another. We're called, as this Catholic educator that I came across, her name's Carmen Caltagaroni. What a Catholic name. Uh, we're called to speak, name, speak words that don't go from the lips to the ears, but from heart to heart. Basically, the prophets of the old and, the, and, the, and our own personal prophets today, she says, are here to announce good news in this ongoing sharing of grace. There's ongoing sharing of grace that we have with each other. And so I think for myself, I'm so profoundly grateful for the Nathans in my life. This young woman who I lived with and others for that year that just spoke into my life. Um, I wouldn't be here without some, even some of you, without my Nathans. I would not be here today <laughs> my life has been through multiple train wrecks, and I would not be here today without some of you. You know, and I haven't been that good to my Nathans, I don't think. David was really good to Nathan in this moment. He immediately, as we're going to see, says, you're right. I've blown it. I need help. Um, I've had a hard time doing that. You know, Proverbs 27, 6 says this, that faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
I don't often see it that way. I just feel wounded. Do you have any Nathans in your life? I guess this is the, the meta question in this first moment. Who are the Nathans in your life? Or have you deputized anybody? Have you given them space and permission to be a Nathan? To speak into your heart? We're all sinners. <laughs> That's the fact. So to speak into your life with grace and truth. You're, we're dead. We're dead in the water without Nathans. And unless we have the Nathans in our life, you know, do you make it safe for people to speak into your heart when they come and talk to you about what's wrong? What, what's maybe gone, what they see in your life? Do you make space for them? Or do you get, like me, a little more devastated and a little angry? You know, like, I can't hear that right now. Do you have the Nathans in your life? And do you give them that freedom, that space, and that room to operate and listen? Um, and to hear stories which are purposed for your heart to heal. Hopefully you're catching this. So that's the why of the story. It's really about prophetic friendship and healing of our hearts. An invitation in this, these warm months of Seattle summer to, to get outside a little bit and develop and work on those friendships because there's great opportunity in them. Here's the second thing. It's the source of David's anger. Uh, theologian Amy Jill Levine, she's a, a Jewish scholar. She argues that religion is meant to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I love that. Uh, she suggests that parables are really good at doing this, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. I mean, isn't that good news? <laughs> Got this parable for you. I want to afflict you <laughs> if you're comfortable. I'm going to comfort you if you're afflicted. She writes, if we hear parables and we think, man, I really like that. Ah, it's a good story, you know. Or worse, it's like an Aesop fable. You know, we just take one lesson away from it. We don't really listen well enough we just seek a universal moral. Just do good. The good Samaritan. You know, be generous. Do good to the people on the margins. If we take this universal moral out of it, moral out of it um, if we do that with the genre that's designed to surprise, challenge, and shake us up, we're, we're probably limiting the parables. And so we're limiting ourselves. We're limiting ourselves. We don't really allow these parables to surprise us and agitate us a little bit. And which is why I love what she says, and I put this in the bulletin, that as we read parables today, we might need to think less about why, what they mean and more about what they do. Less about what they mean. I think I often want to find the meaning behind this parable. I think of the prodigal son parable. What's it mean? Or the good Samaritan. What's it mean? You know, what's that meaning? And I'm not thinking about what is it here to do? The, the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What is this word doing to me today? And I love that, especially with this parable of Nathan to David, because look at what it does. David is literally burning with anger, which is this Hebrew word picture. It's this expression that we, we would say David is as angry as a bull. Literally, his nose, as you look at the Hebrew, and his nostrils are literally lighting up. If you've ever seen like somebody's nostrils flare, or maybe one of your dogs like flare when they're angry, Older translations say he's waxing hot or he's been incensed by Nathan's parable. One even says he's wroth. I love that. He's, David is wroth. We don't say that anymore. Um, Marilyn Vansel, who's a local author and a speaker and writes about spiritual formation and identity, she says this about these two competing selves that we often live with. There's the authentic self, which we're, is the self we're designed by God to be, our God-given personality, your gifts, your personality, your temperament, your identity, you know, all that good stuff. 
But she says that all of us, because of sin in our lives, in our world, tend to lose touch with that self. The self kind of gets caked over, you know, and, and, and hidden. And, and she talks about a shell kind of builds around our lives. And we have this, what she describes as an adapted self, sort of protective persona that we develop or is developed over time. This is the fight or flight instinct in us to avoid being hurt and abandoned, to get what we need, to maintain control when our lives feel out of control. That's the adapted self. All of us have adapted selves, and we all have authentic selves. And here's what she says that's so interesting as this relates to Nathan and David. That adapted self, here's a quote, we rely on this image we've created of ourselves, yet the outcome of letting it rule is not very desirable. It turns into defensiveness and resistance. It's the source of anger, fear, and shame. It causes to bristle and brood and fret, wrath, <laughs> to clamor for attention, validation. We get discontented. We exert power. We manipulate. We are independent. We are stubborn. We become attached to our strengths. We minimize our weaknesses. We lose track of our real purpose, and we just strive to please. I mean, do you hear David in there? I, you maybe hear yourself in there at times. I know I hear myself in there. Uh, you know, the fruit of our made-up persona is really self-centeredness, self-reliance, self-protection. It's all about me. Brooding, bristling, writhing, trying to protect, guard, flee from the truth for David, what he's done caused, the chaos around him. He's supposed to be the man after God's own heart. And look what he's done. What if people knew? His kingdom would fall apart. People can't know. He's got to protect this image. And so he's at this profound point of vulnerability. Vulnerability, the root of vulnerability is actually woundedness. It's from vulnera, to be wounded. He's wounded. He's caught. He's exposed. He's deeply disturbed. Remember, parables are designed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. He's deeply afflicted. By the way, I don't believe this exposure, this disturbance, this affliction is meant to be retribution at the hands of God or God's people. I think we sometimes have a picture of God as this angry, distant finger-wagging God who's disappointed with us. And I've even ha- heard this phrase or used it, God's going to smack me on the head because I'm out of line. We think of God like that, that wants to smack us and set us straight. That's not the God we love and serve, and that's not this. This is, as C.S. Lewis described it somewhere after the death of his life, wife, a severe mercy. This is God's generosity toward David through difficulty which states this opportunity for David to wake up to his authentic self, to become and be this man after God's own heart as he's been identified, which gets to the point of what parables are meant to do. This parable and parables are meant to do something. So that's the source of his anger, but listen to what it's supposed to do. Nathan tells this vivid story to David, rich man, poor man, a classic parable sort of framework that Jesus will use again and again. We'll, we'll look at a couple of those over the weeks. Nathan tells the story, David gets drawn into it. Stories draw us in. You know, physiologically, they draw, they, he's incensed at the greed of this rich man. He can't believe the brutality of this rich man. He wants to punish the rich man. So much so, he says, who is this man? He has to pay. I'm King David. And in the most direct sermon application you're ever going to hear, because I would probably be nervous direct, Nathan just says to David, you're the man. You're the man. 
That's it. I mean, there's, the story goes on, and I didn't read it. Um, you can read it. It gets pretty graphic. I narrated some of the story to you. But one of the greatest questions that's come to me anyway as I've thought in this story is, why didn't just Nathan, Nathan just get to the point? Like, he gets to the point right there. Why not just get to the point? Why not come to David's palace and say, David, everybody knows what's going on. You're not hiding anything. You know even. You sinned. And you can't do that. You're the king. You're going to destroy your life. You're going to destroy everybody's life. Why doesn't he just get to the point? Why does he tell this silly story? A rich man and a poor man and a little ewe lamb. And, you know, it's like, what's this about? And I think the reason is it gets to what this parable is intended to do. We noted David's conscience is beginning to wake up. He gets angry. That's why he's over the top. That's why he's, he's starting to say, this man deserves to die. He's starting to feel, if you think of this adapted self, you lose touch with some of your deeper feelings, right? And your senses, and you're, you're, you're at least semi-consciously aware that something's off in your life, but usually you're not fully aware. And so he starts to sense himself in this story in some level, I think, at least semi-consciously. He's, he's starting to wake up, I think, and when Nathan moves in, he doesn't move in for the kill. <laughs> Instead, he calls him to wake up. You're the man, David. You're the man. He's not trying to annihilate him. He, you know, God doesn't send Nathan to David to condemn him, but to convert him. He doesn't send him with a sword to smite him, but with, a, you could say, a scalpel to take out this tumor. And, and Nathan's response to David is really an invitation to repentance. So I talked about sin, but really this parable is meant to do, and I think most parables are meant to call us to invite us to repentance. And, you know, you've heard me talk about this before, if you've been here before, and you've heard it in other churches, I'm sure, but repentance is simply, I think we think of it as just feeling sorry and bad, right? But really it's recognizing the gravity of sin. We're all sinners, (laughs) every one of us. Admit that you've done wrong. Usually that needs to be with others, but sometimes it is in private with God. And then turn away. Here's repentance. Turn away from that and turn in a new direction. It's, it's his only hope. It's David's only hope now. He has to repent. It's the only way possible for him to put his life and the lives of those he's broken around him back together again to bring healing and reconciliation into the story that God wants to write. So the point is, is that whether implicit or, or explicit, parables like this, and as we read them over the summer, are designed to call us toward repentance. All of them. There's not one that's just meant to be a good story. You know, I hope you take a good lesson from it. It's meant to call you toward a life of change. Martin Luther, who is one of the people that sparked the 16th century Protestant Reformation, and he did so by nailing to the castle door of Wittenberg uh, 95 theses, which were propositions or truth statements about where they were calling the Catholic Church at the time, vehemently calling them, um, out on contemporary practices, especially around indulgences, taking money from people and using them to fill their own pockets. And as you may know, these 90, of the first of these 95 theses was simply this. When our Lord and Master Jesus said, repent, Matthew 4.17, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. The entire life of believers is intended to be one of repentance, not just a moment We've, many of us have had moments of repentance where I know for me when I met Jesus, it was a moment, very much so, in the basement of a house I was living in. and It was very dark. It had that moment, and I've told that story here a couple of times. But 
The entire life I live now is meant to be a life of turning away from sin and toward God. This is why Luther will say when he says, you, when you witness a baptism, those of you who are baptized need to, need to touch your head and say, I am baptized. I am baptized. You're claiming your baptism. You're repenting. You're saying, you know, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive in Christ. The Christian life is intended to be a life of repentance. And so I know that can sound a little bleak, especially on a beautiful day like this. And, and not really that inviting, like, great, I get to go repent today. That's, thanks for that sermon, Jack. That's really fun. But if you think about it, in the aftermath of Nathan's parable, which is kind of where I want to end, what you're going to discover is that actually repentance, biblical repentance, is intended to be anything but bleak. It's not a bleak and weary and gray life. I mean, this would be a great sermon for like February because then you go out into the rain, you're like, repent, oh, yes. But I love that it's a summer day because listen to this. Nathan walks out of that room. He is sent by God, tells the story. You know, he helped David recover his awareness of God. David's now awake to God. His parable sermon aroused in David. Remember David, king, what else? Poet, musician. He writes many of the Psalms. You know where I'm going. His, he's aroused in David a sense of God. His sin, also God's presence. Think of how maybe David was walking that palace roof and wasn't aware of God's presence. How could you be doing the things you do? And so David has this tender heart, man after God's heart. His heart's aroused to God, to his sin. And in that double awareness to sin and grace, David pens this prayer we call Psalm 51. Generous in love. God, give me grace. Huge in mercy. Wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are now staring me down. And yet you're the one I've violated. You've seen it all. You've seen the extent, the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. And whatever you decide about me is fair. And I've been out of step with you for a long time, God. I'm in the wrong. Since I was born, what you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me then, God. Conceive in me a new and true life. And then listen to this. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos. This is repentance. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Bring me back from gray exile. Put fresh wind in my sails. Give me a job teaching rebels your ways. I'm a rebel. Give me a job teaching rebels your ways so the lost can find their way home. Unbutton my lips, dear God, and I'm going to let loose your praise. That's repentance. And that's, that's the joy of repentance, to be able to say things like that. And it's only when we recognize and confess our sin like that that we're in a position to respond to God and return to God. That's the gospel. And so go ahead and come up and we'll finish worship here. But as we finish, I just want to say parables are really this amazing vehicle that God's given us to awaken us to the places in our lives where we might be living in sin. Like I said, we're all sinners. Just got to be honest about it doesn't make you bad. It just makes you human. 
And so where in our lives, and maybe as a community then also, sin is not just individual, it is collective also. Where have we caused hurt? Where have we been taken part in hurt, systemic things, in brokenness? You know, where are we not simply whole as God has made us, living out of our authentic selves? God's made you beautifully and wonderfully made, as David also says in Psalm 139. We're not living out of that self, but hiding. And might you recognize that self again? And in recognizing, here's the repenting, in a hopeful way this summer, my prayer for you is that awake to God's grace, you might hear God inviting you to come out into the open and be greeted by the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. You know, Malachi 4. God wants to greet you. Welcome home. Let's go. So as we journey through the summer, lots of stories we're going to go through. Some are going to awaken you personally. Some are going to awaken our community. Some may not do anything for you. It's okay. <laughs> it's my hope and prayer that each of us will at least come open to this series to how God might speak to us and speak to our hearts and then do things, not just teach us, but do things in our lives. And might we extend that to one another that grace, that truth, prophetic friendship this summer and recognize the areas in our lives where we get to grow. Let me pray and then we'll have the kids come back. Well, God, thank you for this challenging story, this beautiful story. Um, Thank you for the ways in which Nathan and David model for us what it looks like to live in relationship to each other. Um, thank you for the honesty and the, the courage that Nathan models for us and the humility that David uh, models to us. Might we really be postured like them with one another? And then thank you for how this story also invites us. And as these stories we look at these next week invite us to recognize the places in our lives that you want to go to work. So God, might your, your word be alive to us in the days and weeks ahead. Thank you that your word has been with us and alive to us this morning. May you continue to do in these next moments what you need to do. We're here to worship you, God. Pray in Christ's name. Let's go ahead and stand and worship God for this last song.